All right, now we're talking again about the uh, matter of discipleship, particularly as we discover it and find it in the book of Acts. And uh, in the book of Acts, we, uh, we, we have, of course, the, the, the result uh, of, of the discipleship of the Gospels. Uh, when we traveled through the Gospels and looked at almost every passage that had the word disciple in it or even implied in it, um, we learned an awful lot about what it was to uh, have the disciples of the Lord Jesus with Christ. And then uh, we are finding in the book of Acts what it's like to have them sent forth by Christ. And uh, so we, we have a number of things that happen as we study this. Uh, we not only learn a lot about individual discipleship and the way to disciple and uh, what disciples ought to be uh, under the New Testament economy, uh, but we find as well that um, that there is a uh, there are some principles of of uh, the church and principles of church growth and this sort of thing uh, that really come out of this. And so, as a rather introductory message, we and we have been uh, discussing this introductory side uh, for several uh, weeks now, we've discovered that there was some real evidence, hard evidence, in the book of Acts concerning the success of the disciples' ministry. We saw that there was uh, uh, scriptural evidence of the strength of that success. We saw that there was scriptural evidence for the scope of that success. And so therefore, we, we wanted to come to a, a place where we not only saw the evidence, but we tried to discover, at least partially, the explanation of the success of the disciples' ministry. And we discovered that one thing involved was that the disciples had been well prepared. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ had several levels of preparation for them. The first level uh, was previous to the triumphal entry. After the triumphal entry, the last week before the cross, the upper room discourse was the second level of preparation. Third level of preparation were the post-resurrection experiences of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then a fourth level of preparation was there in the upper room for ten days awaiting the promise of the Spirit. And so there was a, there was a very definite preparation for these men. And then there was the preaching of the disciples that was another uh, hallmark of their success. Peter's sermon, uh, his first sermon, his second sermon, uh, Stephen's sermon, uh, these sermons were, were very clearly um, related to already revealed truth and uh, bringing the people uh, up to speed in their knowledge of what had happened in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. And so there very definitely uh, was an effect, uh, effective ministry with preaching. And then a third thing was the purity of the church. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira in the fifth chapter of Acts was a, a typical example of how the Lord maintained a purity in the church. There was not room for, uh, for, for people to be living in carnality. If God was going to bless in the, to the optimum, uh, then there had to be a cleansing out of sin. The same thing, of course, would be true today. And then a fourth thing was the preconditioning of the people. Uh, that is, the, the people themselves were uniquely prepared by the circumstances of those days. Uh, the people uh, were brought to the city of Jerusalem uh, for the day of Pentecost, and uh, the, the town, as you can imagine, was rumbling with all kinds of rumors and stories and uh, some factual information 
concerning the fact that this one, Jesus Christ, who claimed to be Messiah, actually had been crucified, and that the claim was going around that he had risen from the dead. And though the, the disciples were not yet on the scene in an active ministry, yet you can imagine the kind of preparation this was for the people. And even so today, there's, there is a preconditioning of people uh, in, the, in the hearing of the gospel. It's not exactly as dramatic as it was on the day of Pentecost, uh, because Christ uh, uh, came 2,000 years ago and rose from the grave. Uh, but there still is a dramatic preparation of people. God sees to it, when a person is going to come into the sound of the gospel, he sees to it that there is a heart preparation for that person, either by the circumstances, the pressures of their life, or such things, uh, just to, to prepare them so that they are tender toward the hearing of the gospel. And then, in addition to that, uh, there was the propagation of the Word of God, the, the propagation of the Word of God, the telling out of the Word of God. And we quit right in the middle of this section, uh, the last time we were together, which uh, was several weeks ago now, uh, since the last two weeks we've been gone. But uh, we gave you some uh, passage, passage in uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 29 and 31, Acts chapter 6, verses 2, 4, and 7, and Acts chapter 10, verses 36, 37, and 44. Those were some verses. Now, tonight, let's pick up where we left off in Acts chapter 12. Look at Acts chapter 12, if you will, and again we will see the, uh, the imperative of the propagation of the Word of God if the, the church is to be successful or if discipleship ministry is to be effective in the reaching of others with the gospel of Christ. All right, Acts chapter 12 and verse 24. Here now uh, was where Herod had blasphemed and uh, where, where uh, because of his blasphemy, um, the, the Lord touched him and uh, uh, he died. It was a very crucial moment. I, I can think of numerous crucial moments in history. Uh, one of the most dramatic, I guess, uh, is something we've touched on uh, numerous times in our study in the Old Testament, and that is in the year that King Uriah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. A crucial moment in history. Um, it, it's important, I think, that we be sensitive uh, to crucial moments in history. Um, I uh, can recall the, uh, the particular Sunday that uh, following that uh, fateful day in Dallas when President Kennedy uh, was shot and uh, killed. And on Sunday morning, just before most people came to Sunday school, uh, they turned on their television sets to see what the latest development was, and most of the country saw uh, Lee Harvey Oswald shot right on television. Uh, it w this was a very crucial, crucial time. And I can recall uh, that, that the, this particular Sunday, uh, we had a man uh, that was a guest speaker in, in the pulpit in the church where we uh, were ministering. I was an assistant pastor in Spokane, Washington at the time. And uh, it's not important who this man was or anything of the background. The important thing is simply this. The, the man himself was totally insensitive to the historical happening that took place. He was totally insensitive to it. He never, in his message, even referred to it, never mentioned it, uh, but rather gave a very, a very, um, uh, well, a very planned message. In other words, he was untouched by what he read in the newspaper or what he heard. Uh, he had something in mind that he wanted to say, and he wasn't about to change for anything. 
and there was no there was no compassion for a church full of people it was the biggest crowd I think we ever had in the time that we were there people had been urged by the then the, the president uh, uh, newly inaugurated President Johnson uh, to go to church uh, whatever their faith was and to pray and so being a big downtown church we had people you know coming out of the walls in that big church and uh, people that never darkened the door of the church and uh, the man preaching that Sunday morning had not an inkling why everybody was there and uh, he missed the opportunity for the historical the historical happening I think we need to be sensitive that doesn't mean we preach from Time Magazine every week but it means that when things happen where hearts have been tenderized by some happening that has moved the hearts of the people there needs to be a sensitivity to that and uh, whether you preach on it in particular I I wish I you know I was sitting there in the pew squirming that not in the pew I was sitting on the platform squirming that morning and just wishing just itching to get at the pulpit I have to admit because I thought of that verse in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord I thought my what a what a topic for that particular day and it's one of those once in a lifetime chances to preach on that text uh, with an almost exact happening in our country and uh, and yet you know there was no there was no sensitivity now I don't mean to be critical of him he may have had good reason and I think in in some ways he did but I think it's important for us to realize that that uh, in this particular context that Herod has been after Peter's scalp he's been out to get Peter and the Lord intervenes and here a political leader and that really uh, the it was more than a monarch uh, the King King uh, Herod and the family of King Herod down the line was not really a monarchy they were puppet kings they have no right to the throne and uh, they were politicians more than anything else and for political expediency uh, Herod was after Peter's scalp the Lord had to miraculously deliver Peter from prison and uh, Herod blasphemes God and in the process God takes his life and what does the very next verse say after it says that he was eaten of worms and died but the word of God grew and multiplied the word of God grew and multiplied in a crucial moment in history at a very crucial time the Lord continues to minister and continues to work through his word remember this that the Apostle Paul said the Word of God is not bound the Word of God is not bound Paul when he said that you know was was uh, in in a situation where he physically was bound but he said in spite of my bonds in spite of the fact that I am physically bound in spite of the fact that there are people trying to shut me up the Word of God is not bound Herod couldn't stop it Pilate couldn't stop it Caesar couldn't stop it and all through the Caesars that followed uh, Caesar Augustus and uh, the great Caesars down through history none of them could stop it the Word of God is not bound and we have to realize that no matter what limitations may be placed upon us that the Word of God is free and the Word of God sets men free the Word of God is not bound this was a proof of that and the book of Acts is a case history of how the Word of God was propagated through the most difficult of circumstances then you go over to the 13th chapter 
remember that the first 12 chapters deal primarily with the ministry of Peter. And then from chapter 13 on through the end of the book of Acts, we have primarily the ministry of Paul. The ministry of the first 12 chapters is primarily that of a ministry to the Jews. The ministry of the last chapters, beginning in verse 13 and to the end of the book, is primarily a ministry to the Gentiles, though Paul followed the pattern of taking it to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But primarily the emphasis is that of Gentile ministry. So now in chapter 13, and beginning at verse 5, it says, And when they were at Salamis, now this is uh, Paul and Barnabas having been set apart for the ministry, separated, verse 2, and called, verse 2, and they had their uh, laid uh, their hands on them, verse 3, and set them, sent them forth, verse 4. Uh, it says in verse 5, When they were at Salamis, which is on the east coast, the seat of government for uh, the eastern half of the, of the country, uh, it says they preached the word of God in the synagogues to the Jew first, the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John, that would be uh, John Mark, as their helper. All right, now, here we, have, uh, here we have the Apostle Paul with Barnabas visiting Cyprus, which is the, uh, the home uh, town, or the home island, we should say, of, uh, uh, of, of Barnabas, and it's a Roman province, and they come in there, and they're in that Roman province, in that capital city, uh, the seat of government for the eastern half of the island. There we find that there is a, uh, there is a uh, synagogue. And the Apostle Paul, as would be his pattern, almost exclusively on the first missionary journey, the Apostle Paul would go to the synagogue first and proclaim the gospel. And may I say that even in, even in Philippi, where there was no synagogue, he still went to the substitute synagogue down by the river. The women came to worship. There weren't enough men that were Jews uh, or proselytes um, in the city of Philippi to even have a synagogue. And so therefore the women had to go by the, uh, by the river bank to worship. And so Paul goes to the river bank, to the Jew first, as he says in, in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. And then, so here at Salamis, he preached the word of God in the synagogues. Now, see again the fact that it is the word of God that is central. Now, we, we, we can't get away from this. That, that one of the keys to the effective ministry of the, the disciples was their emphasis upon the word of God. And God grant that we never get away from that principle. Because that's the key to the real success of the ministry. It goes on. It says, When they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, southwest part, and the, uh, again, a capital city in the southwest part of the island, it says, They found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar Jesus, who was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent or an understanding man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear what? Politics? Even testimony? Their experience? No. To hear the word of God. Now, of course, 
many things happen subsequently, things that we can't study in this study because it's not our purpose to study the whole book of Acts in detail. But if you look at verse 49, you will see that the Gentiles now are hearing the gospel because the Jews had, had spoken against Paul and Barnabas and had cried out against them. And so it says that the Gentiles heard, heard and as many as were ordained or set in rank uh, to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout the region. It's the word of the Lord that is being propagated throughout these various areas. Now this, of course, is characteristic right through the book of Acts. But if you look at chapter 15, you'll look at verses 35 and 36, and you'll see these words. It's now is at Antioch. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching, what? The word of the Lord with many others also. And verse 36, um, here where where uh, Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus, and Paul and Silas depart. This is the beginning of the second missionary journey. In verse 36, it says, In some days after Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. See, the concern was that we go and give more of the word to those that have heard the word. The emphasis on the word of God. And then just one more. And we could give you others. But Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 and verse 20. Here now is in the, in the city of Ephesus. And it says that, you know, here's something that's happened. This is, this is fantastic. Talk about purity in the church. The thing that's happened is that fear fell on all them. The name of Jesus Christ was magnified. This is after Paul preached. And Paul has really has really uh, emphasized the power of God in this place. And it says that, they, that many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. That is, they, they actually uh, revealed some of the secret arts that they were involved in, some of the demonism, demon worship, sorcery, all of this kind of thing. They came and they got the thing clean. They just knew that it, they couldn't go on with this kind of practice. And many of those who were already used magical arts brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. That'd be um, about $10,000 uh, in the economy of uh, um, the Depression years. Uh, we'd have to, I, you know, it's hard to figure uh, exactly what, uh, what 50,000 pieces of silver would be today uh, because inflation changes so much uh, all of the figures. But if, if we figure it in, in terms of what silver was worth in 1935, then we would have, it would be approximately $10,000 worth of books that were brought and burned right there on the spot. And uh, so what does it say? So mightily grew, what, the church? See, the emphasis is not on church growth. The emphasis is on growth in the Word of God. Now, I contend, from the standpoint of what the Scripture teaches, that our concern as a church body should never be how many people we have. Now, that doesn't mean we don't want to grow. But I don't think that's where the emphasis should lie. What God wants us to be interested in is 
bringing growth in the Word of God to the people He sends to us. And as people grow in the Word of God, the matter of numerical growth is really no problem. The Word of God will have the effect. If there's a lag somewhere in attendance, you know, this year has been a, a rather uh, difficult year uh, in, a, in a way, because of, particularly in our adult Sunday school departments, uh, because it's been difficult to uh, persuade particularly new people in the congregation that they ought to drive three miles to Sunday school after they've come here to church. It's just not easy. And so, you know, it's been difficult. It's been difficult for Rich, I know, because he's been very much involved in, in trying to get all of, the, um, all of the thing coordinated, and we've seen this little sag in our attendance. But again, the attendance, whether it's up or down, is not really the crucial thing. The crucial thing is, are people being fed? Are they being taught the Word of God? So mightily grew the Word of God and prevailed. We need the growth of the Word of God and we need the prevailing of the Word of God. All right, now that's then the propagation of the Word of God as a key factor in this matter of growth. And then there was the power of God's Holy Spirit. That is the next item, the sixth item. The power of God's Holy Spirit. Now, again, let's just look at one verse for the moment. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Here's the promise that Christ has given to his disciples. But ye shall receive power after the Holy Spirit is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Right now, the power of God's Holy Spirit was another factor as far as the church ministry was concerned. This was another reason why that early church was so effective in, in getting the message out and in discipling others because the power of God's Holy Spirit. Now, this is so important, such an important thing, that we're going to devote a whole section uh, to this instead of touching on it in a great, to a great degree uh, in our introductory message here, uh, we're going to uh, uh, study it in, in quite some detail. The key to it all is the power and the presence of God's Holy Spirit. Without Him, there would have been no Pentecostal fire sweeping the church. And so you find the Spirit of God just moving everywhere. Look, if you will, at just some verses uh, without even uh, referring much to the context. Acts chapter 2, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And uh, then, of course, it lists uh, those languages that they spoke under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. This, of course, came when the people themselves were so amazed that such a phenomenon had taken place. And, and Peter says, you really shouldn't be that amazed. God promised that things like this would happen in future days. He's not saying that this is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. He's merely saying, uh, because that's going to come uh, in, a, in a later day, uh, especially uh, upon the nation of Israel. And, uh, but he says that, that this is that 
similar to what Joel talked about. Don't be so amazed that something like this could happen. And then it says, And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Verse 38 of the same text. And Peter said unto them, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then Acts chapter 4 and verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel. A little short message, 92 Greek words, that Peter gives here. And then it says uh, in verse 31 of that same fourth chapter, it says, And when he, they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Acts chapter 5, verse 3. Peter said to Ananias, Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land? Acts chapter 5, verse 9. Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? And that, of course, was when Sapphira was carried out also. And then uh, verse 32 of that same chapter. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Spirit, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Chapter 6, verse 3, Wherefore, brethren, look among you for seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Spirit, even for the job of waiting on tables, a necessity of being filled with the Spirit as well as being filled with wisdom. Verse 5, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip of uh, Procheris, and uh, so on, these others, but filled with the Holy Spirit. Now you see that, of course, then is a is a very basic thing uh, in regard to this whole matter of the success of the disciples. We can't deny that there was success in the early church, success that has not really been repeated in history, not really been repeated with the same level of impact. We've had people with large numbers of people saved in various uh, things that have happened, Billy Graham crusades and so on, but we have never seen a repeat of what happened in that first century. You think of it for a moment. They basically reached their world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's necessary for each generation to do the same. It's the only way that everyone can hear the gospel. Each generation has to proclaim the gospel with fervor. There have been a lot of failure down through church history. A lot of reason for it. A lot of compromise. But I'll guarantee you something. If the people in the churches today, our church or any church, will follow the simplicity of the pattern that we've laid out right here. These things will bring about effectiveness. Now, we're not talking about how many people. We're talking about an effective ministry in these days. The question is, people might ask, can we experience today success as disciples of Jesus Christ the way these people did? Can we not be prepared by having a close fellowship with Christ, even as the disciples did. For he said he'd never leave us nor forsake us. In fact, we have an advantage that the early disciples did not have because their hearts were partially veiled. They couldn't see the whole truth of the gospel in the time that they were with Christ. They had the advantage of his physical presence. But they had the disadvantage of being blind. We have our sight. We do not have his physical presence. But we have the indwelling Christ. We have the empowering of God's Holy Spirit. When you think of that, we 
should be able to be as prepared as they, if not more. The Apostle Paul had a confrontation with Jesus Christ just on a short-term basis. And yet, the Apostle Paul was a dynamic minister of the gospel. You take a man like Timothy and like Titus, uh, or like Epaphras, uh, the pastor-teacher at Colossae in the Lycus Valley. This man had an effective ministry, and he was a man who had never seen Christ. He was not an apostle. He was just a local yokel. He was just a young man who was able to give out, if you please, in this second-hand but spirit-empowered way, the Word of God. And the people at Colossae were some of the best taught people in all of Asia. And so therefore, we, we have to realize that we can be even better prepared in some ways than those disciples who walked and talked with Christ. Christ has promised that he'd be with us. He promised that he would teach us. He promised the Spirit of God would guide us into all truth and teach us things to come. And so therefore, we have that advantage. Secondly, can we not preach the Word of God today with the same fervor and the same confidence? Paul turns to a young man who had, is a, if you please, a second-generation Christian. First generation being the generation of the apostles. He comes and he finds a teenager in a place called Lystra, and uh, he leads him to Christ. When he comes back on his second missionary journey, he notices this young man has matured and is ready to go, and he asks him to pack his duffel bag and follow him. And he follows Paul on the, the remainder of his second missionary journey. Later on, the Apostle Paul sends him as a special emissary on several different places. He sent him, you remember, uh, back uh, up to uh, Thessalonica to see how the people were faring there. Uh, he was well known and loved at Philippi, but his particular ministry was in the church of Ephesus. And the Apostle Paul said, said uh, to Timothy one day, uh, just shortly before Paul was to check out of this life, he knew that his, his fate was awaiting him. It was the last letter that Paul wrote. And he wrote to Timothy, and in the fourth chapter, verse 2 of 2 Timothy, he said, preach the word. Be diligent in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. If Timothy could do that, then every succeeding generation can have their Timothys who can proclaim the word of God. And so therefore, even as the preaching of Peter, the preaching of, of Stephen, and the preaching of Paul after the 13th chapter, even as those things were effective things in the matter of the church growth, in the matter of success of these men. So we can have the same thing, if you please. And so therefore, we can have that preaching of the word today. And then as well, we can have purity in our churches today. Galatians chapter 6, Matthew chapter 18, Titus chapter 3 give to us some of the pattern for maintaining purity in the church. We're talking about Matthew 18 a little bit this morning. That's such a crucial thing. And uh, maybe I'll just take a minute and, and, and review it again for your, for your thinking. I think it's something that is really a forgotten thing in the church of Jesus Christ today. Basically, you see, what's involved is that if ever there is an, a problem that you have with any person for any reason whatsoever, even little things, very clearly the Scripture says you go alone. Go alone to the person. Now, that's not being practiced in churches today. By and large, 
It is always the policy of the average church member to talk to three or four other people, support their position, and uh, they never do get around to going alone to the person. You're to go alone. And the scripture says that if he hears you, then you've gained a brother. But if he doesn't hear you, then you move to step number two. You go a, third, a, a second time. This time, two or three neutral witnesses. Now, I can understand right off the bat why most people don't like to follow step two. They don't like to follow step one, and they don't like to follow step two. They don't like to follow step one because it's pretty embarrassing to go straight face-to-face -face with the man that you're confronting. That's a tough thing. It's a whole lot easier to talk to other people about his problem than it is to go directly to him, right? Sure. Okay, so you don't like that. But you also don't like this. And you know why? Because if you get two or three neutral observers, they just might hear the case and find that you're wrong. And that's dangerous. Because you're convinced you're right. And you're to go, and these, these people are to arbitrate, and they're to decide. And after they hear the case, they have to say, what's right and what's wrong in the situation. And basically, they should be mature people, probably leaders in the church, which, of course, precludes that the leaders ought to be doing this too. Otherwise, they will not be qualified to be effective in this way. But you see what I mean? It, this is a hard situation because after I, you know, I hear this guy, is, as far as I'm concerned, he's offended me. And I go to him and I say, you've offended me. And the guy says, I didn't do a thing. And I say, all right. And I go out and I... I uh, get two or three witnesses, and I don't prime them ahead of time. I just simply say there's a case to be arbitrated. And we come together, and they hear his side, and they hear my side, and they, say, they look at me, and they say, you're wrong. Oh, boy, now I'm in trouble. Because all the time I was trying to correct him, now he's corrected me. But if indeed he's found to be wrong, and he hears you, then you've gained a brother. That's the goal, always, see? You're trying, to, you're trying to build the brotherhood. That's the key to the whole thing. So you go two or three witnesses, and, and if you, he hears you, then you've gained a brother. If not, then that's when you go to the church. If he hears you, then you've gained a brother. If he doesn't, then you treat him like a heathen and a publican. Now you say, oh boy, then we really get him, don't we? No, no. What do you do with a heathen and a publican? You seek to win him, don't you? Because, you see, when you have a heathen and a publican, you still go with Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, either spiritual restore such one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Christ ate with publicans and sinners and sought to win them. And therefore, it's not as though we, we cast him out, though it may be necessary to... Uh, restrict certain areas of fellowship. He certainly cannot be uh, in fellowship with the church where he has this wrong that's never been made, made right. And so he'd be restricted, even as you would an unbeliever. There are certain things you certainly, you certainly wouldn't uh, uh, have an unbeliever teach a Bible study. Uh, you wouldn't have an unbeliever, uh, hopefully you wouldn't have an unbeliever partake of communion. At least you would make it very clear that that's not his prerogative as an unbeliever. You see what I mean? All of that is involved. So it's not as though you cast the man out. It's just simply that you deal with him and deal with him in love. But you treat him a little bit differently when he has rejected the, the warnings that has come to him. Now, it's this that maintains purity in the church. 
It's this that maintains a spirit of oneness and love with no friction between brothers at all. And it's purity in the church that's needed today if we are to be effective. Doesn't God still precondition people? We mentioned that briefly in passing already tonight. Marriage and family needs, pressure of circumstances, illnesses, this kind of thing preconditions people to be ready to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and gives us an effectiveness with them. Can there not be a propagation of the word of God today? The word of God is still alive and powerful, sharpened than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is the critic of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The word of God today is just as effective as it was then. There is no reason today why the word of God cannot be proclaimed with the same fervor and, if you please, with the same result in the lives of people and the same multiplying process that they saw in the book of Acts. It's as clear as can be in Scripture. First Peter chapter 1 talks about this. Uh, perhaps we could just quickly look at that. First Peter chapter 1. And uh, beginning in verse 23, it says for... Um, got the wrong book here. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is like grass, and all the glory of man like the flower of grass. The grass withereth, its flower falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow by it. The word of God can be just as effective today as it was then. And then, is God's Holy Spirit not active today? Doesn't God's Holy Spirit still function? Now mind you, I want you to understand something. In the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit's ministry was unique coming up through the early part of that ministry because the there was the gradual unfolding of truth. Realize that this is not an unusual thing at all. Um, we see the, for instance, the ministry of Jesus Christ himself. That Christ didn't come in the very first day. He said, okay, here's all the plan. And just lay out the whole thing. Saying, I'm going to work around here for three and a half years. And then uh, after I do this and that and the other thing, then I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to... Um, I'm going to uh, uh, rise the third day and I'll send to the Father and the Holy Spirit will come. And He didn't give that in the first lesson. There was a gradual unfolding of the truth. You see the early ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, you get the distinct impression that Jesus Christ is there as the Jewish Messiah. Indeed He was. And you see, He was fulfilling all that was needed to be fulfilled previous to his death, but after he was rejected by the Jews, he began then to tell his disciples, it is necessary for me to go to Jerusalem to die and to rise the third day. He began to unfold that. He doesn't even mention the church until the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. It's not even mentioned. In fact, it's, uh, it's hardly even hinted at. Chapter 13, there's... Eh, in retrospect, we can see a little hint of the church there. But as far as the church being mentioned, 
It's in the 16th chapter at Caesarea Philippi where the, Lord, where the Lord said, upon this principle, upon this rock, the rock bed of the confession of Jesus Christ, I will build my church. And so therefore the church isn't even mentioned until that chapter. So there's a gradual unfolding of the truth. And in the, in the book of Acts, the Spirit of God came to the people on the day of Pentecost. It was a later time that he came to the people of Samaria, which was, was a separate a sect, a sect of people, a separate a cultural group of people. It, it was after that that he came upon the Gentiles, and that was a third uh, group, grouping, cultural grouping of people. Uh, in the house of Cornelius, the Spirit of God came upon them, and that was a, a further revealing that the Holy Spirit was not only for the Jew, not only for the Samaritan, the people of mixed blood, but also for the Gentiles. And then there was the unfolding of the Spirit of God to the disciples of John, who were people who were living in the Old Testament. They were still back in the Old Testament law. They hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. They hadn't heard of Christ. And there at Ephesus, when they found this group of people, they too received the power of the Holy Spirit. Ever after that, it's obvious that the Holy Spirit, even uh, as early a writing as 1 Corinthians, that the Holy, and that was one of the earlier books, that the Holy Spirit baptizes into the body every individual that receives Jesus Christ by faith. And from the church of Ephesus and the letter that Paul wrote to them, it's made very clear that it is the prerogative of the believer to be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. Fifth chapter, 18th verse of the uh, book of Ephesians. And so therefore, it is possible now, it is, it is imperative now that an individual be baptized into the body of Christ by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You are not a Christian if that has not happened. Period. It's made very clear in 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians. If you do not have the Spirit of God, you are none of His. That's clearly written in Scripture. And the, it's the Holy Spirit who baptizes us into the body of Christ. All right? And then there, the, there's the potential constantly for constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's absolutely key that Christians today walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit, that there be a cleansing, a constant cleansing by the blood of Christ, by confession of sin where willful sin is there, and that there be that constant filling with the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit control. The filling of the Holy Spirit, is, it, though it can be, uh, it, it's often used to, uh, with the illustration of the filling of a glass, and, and that has some advantage to it, but it's more than simply the filling like a glass full of water. There's, there's something more to it than that. It is a generating power. It is a control factor. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. When you're drunk with wine, you're under the control of wine or under the affluence of alcohol or whatever it is. And uh, you, you have that controlling factor. And when you are filled with the Spirit, you are controlled by God's Holy Spirit. So your response is that of an automatic response to what the Spirit of God wants rather than what we want. And it's our responsibility to walk in the Spirit, as it says in Galatians chapter 5, walk in the Spirit and you will never, never, double negative there, you'll never, never fulfill the lust of the flesh. As long as you're walking in the Spirit, you will not be fulfilling the lust of the flesh. And it goes on and talks about the conflict between the flesh and the Spirit in that text. So the Spirit of God baptizes into His body, He indwells us, He seals us, He empowers the believer, He guides us into all truth, He illuminates God's Word, He convicts the unbeliever of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, He bestows spiritual gifts according to His will, He glorifies Christ. All of those things are things that the Spirit of God does. And so therefore, 
It is, it is as possible today for there to be the power of God's Holy Spirit utilized through instruments like you and like me as it was for God to use people like Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and Titus and Peter and all the rest of them. It is just as possible. It is the same Spirit of God. God has not changed. I think one of the things that has been so impressive to me is something that uh, uh, Paul Reese said uh, many years ago. He said that if the Spirit of God were suddenly removed from the church of Jesus Christ, we probably wouldn't even miss him. What he meant by that was that so much of what we do is in the flesh. There's so much program, so much that we program into the activities that we would go ahead on sheer momentum and never miss the Spirit of God if He were taken away. God grant that we have the kind of church that is so sensitive to the Spirit of God that if there be any lack at all or any grieving or any quenching of the Spirit of God at all in our midst, that we come to a screeching, grinding halt and find out what's wrong before we make another move. That's what God wants in His church today. And it's that kind of sensitivity to the Spirit of God that will bring us to that place of ultimate success. Now what we've tried to do in just way of introduction is to develop for you this concept that we have the same potential for success as God views success today as they did in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is one book in the scriptures that has no amen to it. Did you ever notice that? Here's what it says. Listen to this. Here's how it ends. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the, the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. What's the next verse? The next verse was, well, it goes on and on and on. I don't know what chapter we're writing now. I got a feeling God's keeping records. And he may not call it Acts 29 or 30 or 31 or whatever, but I'm sure that God has documented the success and the failure of the church of Jesus Christ down through the ages. I'm sure there have been times where the Spirit of God has been grieved. And I'm sure that even in the history of Valley Church, there have been times where the Spirit of God has been grieved. And I'm sure there are times where the success of the church may have been outward and people might have recorded it as success and God may have recorded it as failure. And I think there are times as well where people recorded what was being done as failure and God recorded it as a success. Because from the divine viewpoint, it is again not so important how many people you put in the pews, but rather are the people growing in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so we come to a focus now. Because if we're to understand discipleship in the book of Acts, it first of all is necessary for us to see that indeed there was a success, if you, if you please, a success syndrome in the book of Acts. Divine viewpoint success. 
they were successful. They did accomplish a purpose. They did reach Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. The gospel did go forth. They claimed that they'd turned the world upside down. They had filled all Jerusalem with their doctrine. There's no doubt about the fact that they were successful. And so, if we are to fill our communities with the doctrine of Jesus Christ, it's essential that we have these things in mind. And then that we understand discipleship as it's taught in the book of Acts. We're going to talk in subsequent weeks about the Spirit of God and the disciple, about salvation and the disciple, about soul winning and the disciple, service and the disciple, stewardship and the disciple, separation and the disciple, society and the disciple, steadfastness and the disciple, schism, or schism as some people pronounce it, and the disciple, suffering and the disciple, and strife and the disciple. We've got a ways to go before we get through with all that, don't we? But those are some of the topics that we're going to consider in the next several weeks so that we're able to come to an understanding of these factors as they relate to the disciple. Next week, we'll begin by talking about part one, which is the spirit and the disciple, and come to, a, to grips with the reality of what Jesus Christ can do for us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray together, shall we? Thank you, Father, for that which you have prepared for us. We thank you for the privilege that is ours in, in just proclaiming your name and lifting up our voices in praise to you. Lord, we're thankful that you don't evaluate success the way we evaluate success. We're thankful that as you view it, we, many of the things that we do, at least in the power of the flesh, are really a waste of time and spinning of the wheels. We know that only, the only thing that really matters is what really glorifies your name and gives you the honor. And so we pray that in whatever we do, that we will do it to the glory of God. Whether it's eating or drinking, or whether it be the activity of the church, we pray that we may not be filled with merely doing things. But Lord, help us to be vessels unto honor, meet for the Master's use. Help us to have this treasure in earthen vessels, in common clay pots, and to realize that the excellency is not of us, but of God. As we dismiss tonight, may we have a new sense of awe at that which causes success in a local church assembly and help people in this church to respond to the kind of success that gives you joy and will praise you in Christ's precious name. Amen.